What's up, everyone? This is episode 111 of the Wax Museum Podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle. And as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, um, I'm going to start today with some very sad news from this week. If you didn't read about it when it happened, uh, of course you can see it in the title of today's episode. Slick Leonard passed away on Tuesday morning at the age of 88. And I've talked about it multiple times before, but Slick was a larger-than-life figure when it came to Indiana basketball. And then, of course, that meant he was a, a big deal to me, too. Um, you know, from my upbringing and my connection to the sport, and then, obviously, my collecting background is I have a huge Pacers collection, right? So he's a big deal to that. Um, and I was thinking a lot about what I wanted to do today. And truth be told, you know, tribute episodes are tough. And this show's only been around a couple of years. And I don't remember whose passing first triggered that thought for me. But it, it's not something that first came to my mind this week. It, it's really been on my mind over the last year or so. It might have been the Kobe episode I did with Jake Roy from 90s B-Ball Cards. Who knows? But around the same time that I, I started having those thoughts... I decided I wanted to make it a goal to reach out to some of the aging legends of the game that really influenced my fandom. Even if I could only reach one or two, I wanted to give some of these guys a platform to share their story and also receive their proper recognition at the same time. Well, episode 83, which was my interview with Slick Leonard, was a direct result of that. And people in Indiana were very familiar with him, but I, I felt like he didn't get a lot of recognition outside of that, which is a shame. And and I've had a lot of people message me this week saying, you know, thank you for um, telling me about him and having him on the show and letting him speak um, so that they could learn about him. Well, and that was a result of him being gracious enough to respond to me and to offer up his time. And, and I will cherish that conversation for the rest of my life. Um, sure, you know, I'm going to share a few thoughts about him today. I am right now. But I hope that episode 83 serves as my true tribute, not only to him, but also to his wife, Nancy, who's still with us uh, and played a huge role in the franchise as well. Now, coincidentally, today's regularly scheduled episode was an interview I recorded last week with one of Slick's former players, Bob Nedelicki. And I'm going to play that interview as it was originally prepared. And not surprisingly, we talked about Slick. And at one point, you'll hear Bob joke that he had just talked to Slick a couple days before him and I talked, and um, he joked with Slick that he was going to live to be 200 years old. And I left all of that in. And, you know, I, I don't know, you know, some people might think that's strange or whatever, but like I said, I want you to hear the conversation the way it actually happened. And I also think moments like that and and kind of snippets like that those are a testament to the way people viewed Slick. We all kind of felt like he was immortal, even though we knew better than that. If you think about it, this guy survived a plane crash in 1960. He's had different health issues since then. He was even brought back to life after a heart attack on the Pacers team bus in New York in 2011. I think that was actually his second heart attack. He was just a tough, resilient guy 
but also very mindful of all the people he interacted with and the people who wanted a, just a little bit of his time. And it really stings when you lose someone like that. But he also left us with a lot of great memories, and you'll hear some of those today from Bob. So I'm just going to segue right into that conversation. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad Bob was able to come on the show with me. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen today, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, as you guys know, I am a diehard Indiana Pacers fan. I grew up in the Reggie Miller era, but when I was in high school, I decided to branch out and learn more about the history of the franchise. And that led me to a book from Terry Pluto called Loose Balls. I'm sure a lot of you have heard of it. Maybe some of you have even read it. It was in that book that I first learned about former Pacer Bob Nedelicki. Well, eventually YouTube came around and I was able to see some footage of him um, to kind of add to that knowledge base. Well, here we are a number of years later and he's agreed to come on the show. So first off, Bob, thank you. Um, how are things going for you? Real good. Real good. Hey, you know, every, at my age, every day above the ground is a good day. You know what I mean? <laughs> Definitely. And, and um, chaotic times right now, but it, uh, hopefully we're getting through all that. And, um, you know, we're hopefully we got better better year ahead of us here. Um, yeah. I've got a lot of things that I want to talk to you about. So let's go ahead and, and just jump right in. As I mentioned, I grew up a huge Pacers fan. I'm more familiar with your Pacers days, but I know you put up some really impressive numbers at Drake before that. Can you tell me a little bit about your basketball origins and what your road to professional basketball looked like? Well, it's a little different than most. <laughs> uh, I really didn't play in high school. When I was a freshman in high school, I was about five foot ten, and I. I got cut from my freshman team. I coached sort of Michael Jordan, I guess. But, <laughs> uh, uh, and then I started to grow, and I started playing some AAU ball. And I played in my junior year. I was at a uh, Catholic high school, and I uh, played a little bit. But then my senior year, I went to the public school. I didn't play. I had some, uh, I had some knee problems and back problems back then, and I really didn't play and so I got out of high school and I started playing with a, a group of AAU guys out the YMCA believe it or not some guys that are out of, just out of college and I played a couple of years uh just goofed around and hanging around a pool hall and playing AAU basketball with these guys and uh, a friend of mine uh, could have tried and go to a junior college up there called Ellsworth Junior College up in in Iowa and he was telling me that they are having these tryouts for the high school kids and they're going to go up and they're going to let you play against the uh, the varsity who had this kid named, uh, I don't remember his name. But anyway, he was a all-American all uh, junior college guy. He ended up, he ended up, funny part, he ended up going to uh, New Mexico and played with Mel Daniels uh, huh. in New Mexico. But uh, anyway, he, uh, I think his name was Claude williams i think his name was. anyway we went up there uh, one afternoon and worked out with the team and all high school guys and i guess i made an impression on the coach because he wanted to, me to come to college and then he told uh, back in those days uh, uh junior colleges are, were a pretty big time feeder system for the uh for the ncaa and uh for the major major colleges uh mel daniels who you know i'm sure you know of was at uh, Burlington Junior College for a year, and he ended up at New Mexico. And anyway, uh, uh, Jim Carrey was the uh, 
was the coach at uh, Ellsworth, and he knew Coach Morris John at uh, Drake, and he mentioned my name to him and told him uh, he thought I had a good chance of playing basketball, and one thing led to another, and all of a sudden, Maury John shows up at uh, my door and uh, offered me a uh, full scholarship to uh, play basketball at Drake, which kind of shocked me and shocked my family, and so uh, one thing led to another. And that's my kind of uh, high school and college career in a nutshell. Okay. So then obviously, I mean, that I'm sure that got you some more exposure. And so much so you were drafted by um, the San Diego Rockets in the 1967 NBA draft and the Pacers in the inaugural ABA draft. Um, the NBA was, I, you know, I think it's fair to say was the more established league because the ABA was just starting. But you chose to sign with the Pacers. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that decision well, and all that entailed. You know, people today don't really, I don't think they realize, unless they're guys my age, what pro ball was back then. When you were playing now, today, every kid when they're 10 years old wants to wants to play professional basketball. But back when I was growing up, uh, number one, you never heard of the NBA unless you were in a major city. Um, they Up until 1966, there was only eight teams in the NBA. Just imagine that. Hmm. Eight teams. And um, we just, uh, you know, they were never on television unless they had a tape show with maybe Will Chamberlain and Bill Russell playing against each other. So nobody nobody even gave a second thought about playing pro ball, truthfully. And uh, uh, I I remember I got started getting some letters from the Knicks and uh, a bunch of different uh, NBA teams. And and they drafted me in in San Diego. And... uh, I think Pat, they had the number one choice because San Diego was an expansion team that year. Uh, Pat Riley was their number one pick, and then I was their second pick. And um, then the Pacers picked me. And, uh, you know, when they picked me, I had no idea who, you know, who the Pacers were because mm-hmm. the ABA was just brand new. And uh, to make a long story short is uh, I basically uh, went with a team that gave me a no-cut contract and paid me the most money. Their money wasn't very big in those days. Okay. It's, it's crazy today, but I mean, it was nothing back then. Now, I've read something here. I'll see if you can confirm it. Did a Chevy Corvette have something to do with that as well? Yeah, I, I uh, Mike Storen, who was the uh, he was the general manager. Uh, he had a kind of a practice to sign guys. He would promise them he would lease them a car for a year, okay, <laughs> and uh, along with their contract. So. I told him, I said, well, I said, you know, I'd like, would you lease me a Corvette? And he said, he didn't know, he didn't know a Corvette from a monkey <laughs> wagon. And he said, well, what kind of car is that? And I said, it's a Chevy. He said, oh yeah, no problem. So they wrote that up. And <laughs> I think the Corvette cost him more of my contract, the lease, because, you know, 20 something kid with a Corvette and the insurance wasn't exactly the cheapest state in town. <laughs> right. So, so you like you said, you chose the Pacers. You were with them from the very start, meaning you you started off playing for Larry Staverman, who he didn't last long. Larry was a really nice guy, but he just was you know he was young and he really didn't have a clue about coaching professional basketball, and and the players didn't really you know care for him. I mean, I like Larry; he's a nice guy. It's just he just didn't he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. And you know, back then it's different than it is today it's a funny thing i was talking about this money thing i mean i was the i was the highest paid player on the team i think the first year and i think my contract was like eighteen thousand dollars wow and uh earl monroe i'm sure you know who earl pearl is from mm-hmm. uh, the knicks 
Earl was drafted that year with me too, and he signed with Baltimore for twenty four thousand a year, and we thought he broke the bank. So right. I can tell you, the money wasn't exactly. Uh, you know, Jerry West, I think, was one of the highest paid players in the NBA back then, and he was making thirty five grand. We used to think that was the dream salary. Right. They make that now. They make that a minute now. I think when they're playing. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. The numbers now are just staggering, and then they'll buy people out for insane amounts too. Well, the funny part about that is I, when I, I just, you know, I don't know if you read my book that we published about a year ago, but, you know, the year we won the first championship in 1970, you could take all the players on the team, all the coaches, the trainers, okay, and the equipment managers, combine all their salaries into one lump, and a guy like Paul George makes more than that in one quarter of a game. Hmm. <laughs> so it kind of puts it in perspective a little bit. <laughs> right. So that next year, you ended up playing for Slick Leonard, who I had on this show um, last year. He's a great guy, isn't he? He, you know what? That was um, that was a huge moment for me because he he had been part of you know my Pacers fandom my whole life, and and he couldn't have been any nicer. What were your first impressions of him? Well, Slick, you know, like I said, Slick's going to live to be 200 years old, I think. I told him that. He, I just talked to him about two days ago. You know, he had a little bout and had to go back to the hospital. I don't know if you had, you know, he had a heart aneurysm about three, about a month ago, and then he caught COVID. And, yeah. and uh, But, you know, he's so tough, I think COVID would be scared of him. Yeah. But, uh, but he, uh, Slick, I knew Slick. Slick handled our rookie camp when I was a rookie the first year. He and uh, Clyde LaVellette handled the rookie camp. And Slick would come down to games, and I got to know Slick pretty well. I mean, he he was he was no, you know, he'd say, "Let's go out and have a beer." And of course, that was great. We'd go out and have a beer. And actually, Jimmy Rail was a very good friend of his, and so I, I knew Slick really well uh, throughout the year. And then Slick would tell us, you know, "Hey, you guys are really, you know, you got a lot of talent on your team. You're just not utilizing what you got." And we know, we all knew it from a coaching standpoint. I remember I used to. Tease like, why don't you coach us? And he just kind of looked the other way. And, <laughs> but then, bingo, it happened. And uh, there's a lot of guys that are very happy about that. Yeah. One thing Slick and I talked about, you know, I had to bring up the incident with him and Red Auerbach from, you know, some of his earlier days. And, and we know that he could get animated. Um, you know, that might That's even a, be an understatement. Which, which, which instance are you talking about? Are you talking about when he grabbed him by the neck? Yes. Yeah. When, it, oh, when they, they sent it. Actually, you mentioned... <laughs> Uh, I think they they sent in Jim Laskatuff in and uh, kind of were roughing yeah. some people up, and, and Slick didn't like that. Well, Terry Dishinger was a rookie that year from Purdue. Right. That's who they were roughing up, and uh, Slick wasn't real happy about that. <laughs> I mean, to walk into the Boston Celtic uh, huddle in, in Boston Garden <laughs> and grab Arabic by the neck and, and threaten to punch him, but that was, uh, you know, not many people would do that. I know. If only we had the footage of that. I, I have searched high and low. I wished it was out there. Sam Jones is the one that told us the story about that. You know, it's the reason Sam Jones got in pro basketball in the Celtics. He played in the army was slick mm -hmm. and slick told him he, he was good enough to play in the pros and slick kind of helped him get into the nba and that's how all that happened you saw slick's anger firsthand not that necessarily that it was all you know he was really mad at people maybe it was just a motivational technique you know we've heard stories about him chasing you around with a hockey stick but i don't know if my listeners have heard that do you want to tell that story here real quick you know that story's been uh 
told it my, my, many different ways across the years, but we were we were playing a game uh, exhibition. It might have been exhibition, or I'm not sure exhibition. Or, I think it was a regular season game, and we were playing uh, the Minnesota Muskies, and they were playing one of their games at a, in Duluth, Minnesota, and it was about 30 degrees below zero up there in Duluth, and we were playing in a uh, an old hockey gym. They had a it was a gym, but it had been a, we were in like a hockey locker room in the gym. And I must admit, I was kind of dogging it the first half. I was playing pretty good. And I came in, and I was sitting there, and all of a sudden, Slick started looking at me and yelling at people. And I'll say he just started giving me this really weird look. And he walked over to the, and they had this whole stack of hockey sticks in the hockey locker room. And he grabbed a hockey stick, and he looked at me, and he says, I'm going to he said, I'm going to bash you over. The, and I took off running into the bathroom and locked myself <laughs> in the restroom. And I was laughing in there. But I, he, he started beating on the door with the, uh, with the hockey stick. And uh, naturally, all the guys on the team were getting a big kick out of everybody but me. Right. But uh, it worked. We ended up winning the game. And I, I think I had a pretty good second half. So <laughs> Slick, Slick knows how to motivate people. Only in the ABA, right? You mentioned having a, you know, having a beer with him, um, and and he kind of hung out with the team. I, you know, I don't see that dynamic oh, yeah. no. working today. No. The other day we were just talking. I don't think there'll ever ever be a team like we were. But I can tell you about the drink, the drink part. Uh, first time, about a week after Slick took over, we had an exhibition game in St. Petersburg with Miami. Okay, mm-hmm. and. Uh, we were down in St. Petersburg, and Mike Lewis, who played at Duke, he, he was a he was a rookie. He came in, and Mike and I were in the locker room, and Slick said, "Come on, you guys, uh, we're at the hotel. Let's go have a drink." So we said, "Okay, sounds good." And Mike was kind of wide-eyed; he'd never seen a coach asking me to have a drink before. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, we sat down at the table, and the waitress come up, and she said, "Hi, can I take your order?" And Slick looks at her and says, "Yeah, bring us three gin tonics." And she starts to walk away. And about two seconds later, Slick says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. These guys haven't ordered yet. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when I looked at Mike and I said, see, <laughs> this is going to be a tough one to keep up with here. While we're on the topic here, I know you had your own, and, I, and I've seen it, you know, I've seen it called a bar or a nightclub, you know, an establishment. What Talk to me about the what you owned in Indianapolis. I guess, what would you classify it as and, and how did that come about? Well, it was a club. It was a it was a bar nightclub. The guy in Indianapolis named Trick Perrin. He owned about three nightclubs in Indy. And a friend of his, him, approached me and said, "You know, he said this town is really ripe for a sports bar. There really isn't one in the whole city. And uh, there's this club about two blocks from the Coliseum. That's where we played basketball. And it's called the Crown Room. And the Crown Room was." kind of famous nightclub in Indianapolis that had Frank Sinatra and all these people in it and 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 she said we can lease this thing pretty cheap and we'll we'll call it Netto's and uh, let's see what we can do and so I said well okay that sounds like a lot of fun and uh, so we went to the bank and borrowed X amount of dollars and uh, that was kind of interesting too because I think the banker I gave him a lot of gray hairs because <laughs> I think we borrowed 40 or 50 grand and when I signed the note, I signed it, Bob Nedlicky, president of Nettle Enterprises, or whatever it was. <laughs> and uh, he, he was like a vice president. About three weeks later, he, he called me almost crying on the phone. He said, oh, you were supposed to sign this personally. You didn't. And I said, well, don't worry about it. <laughs> we ended up, of course, we ended up paying it all off and everything, but he was probably a little nervous. But it was a lot of fun. We had, uh, you know, we, we had some 
Atlanta red, white, blue basketballs in it. We had a really great band, nice dance floor. We had all kinds of sports pictures on the walls. Not just not just basketball, but a lot of racing pictures. And uh, you know, especially during the month of May, oh my gosh, all the race drivers. I got to know a lot of the Indy 500 drivers, and every night you'd see them in there. And we had some, you know, heavy hitters, uh, race fans like James Garner. I mean, he was a big race fan. He came in all the time, and Bobby Unser and. Al Unser and all the guys. We even had Paul Astronauts in there a few times. Huh. The thing about it is there was no sports bars in Indianapolis. And mm-hmm. It just really caught on. And, uh, you know, after a game, it'd be amazing. People would leave at halftime to get a seat because there'd be a <laughs> line around the block to get in after games. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. But one of the big things, uh, and I've talked to a lot of people in Indy, a lot of uh, the city leaders and stuff, it was one of the first places in Indianapolis where the blacks, whites, everybody, we all, there was no there was no color line at my bar. Mm-hmm. And there was very few bars, there probably wasn't any in Indianapolis that were, the, were black and whites mixed. You know, that was in the 60s, and that was a crazy time back in the 60s, you know, what stuff going on. And it was really, had ever had any problems. Everybody was a Pacer fan. We treated, everybody was treated the same, and it was pretty cool. Yeah, and I saw, um, I think it was a Christmas card. Someone scanned a picture of a Christmas card not too long ago from the 70s, and it looked like it was taken in a bar, and I thought to myself, I think I know where that's at. And I, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, I couldn't confirm it, but I, I said, I'm pretty sure I know where that was taken at. I'll tell you funny, another funny thing. We never had to worry about police protection because usually any time of the day, evening you would go to my bar, and if you go out the back, Back of the bar, there'd be usually a police car running because we'd let them in the back door. If they wanted a beer, we'd give them a beer. If they wanted a coffee, we'd give them a coffee. And it was, uh, let's just say, pretty pretty friendly. Right. So it seemed like, you know, you, you really enjoyed Indianapolis. Um, you spent the majority of your playing career with the Pacers. You were there from 67 to, to 72. Um, you spent a year or so out in Texas with um, a franchise that eventually became the Spurs. I figure Texas was a bit of an adjustment from Indiana. Did you enjoy your time there at all? I'll tell you, Dallas is a great city, uh, and San Antonio was cool, too. But when I went down to Dallas, it was funny because I had some friends there. I had a couple of some good friends of mine that were that were there that had come to the 500 and see a lot of the race drivers. Were, you know, A.J. Foyt was from Texas, and uh, Johnny Rutherford lived in the in Fort Worth and uh, a bunch of other guys, Lord Ruby and a lot of the Texas guys are down there. So I, I really like Texas and I, I had a lot of, you know, I had some friends down there and I made some friends and uh, the, my year in Dallas was a lot of fun. And then I came back and then they moved to San Antonio, which was kind of a real fun day. Really mm-hmm. it was a lot of fun. I mean, San Antonio is a really neat town. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, I was on the first Spurs team there and, uh, uh, that's kind of cool. Of course, uh, that's a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. It's changed a little bit, but uh, it was uh, it's kind of fun to be on the uh, the first team on, on a couple teams that are still in the NBA. I was on the first Pacer team, and I was on the first uh, Spurs team. I think that also um, had you end up on uh, both sides of a box score at one point because a, a game yeah. what a game was protested, and you ended up right. being traded and being on the on both teams. Well, yeah. I, I, we played in Indiana, played the Spurs, and they protested the game. And uh, the store uh, the commissioner were going to play it over again next time the two teams got together, which was Indy. And in the meantime, I got traded back to Indianapolis. And uh, 
And so I actually played the part of the, I played the overtime and it was weird because I intercepted the pass when they tried to get it in the overtime. And then, uh, you know, so my name is in the two box scores, but that's, uh, <laughs> that was kind of weird. So um, around the same time, you know, we're, we're talking about kind of opponents and teams that you face. Um, you got to face Wilt Chamberlain in the ABA, only he was a coach of the San Diego right. club. San Diego had a practice in San Antonio. You know, we played them the first game uh, they in San Antonio, the first regular season game. And, uh, you know, Will was the coach, but they had a practice show. He was in there kind of trying to, you know, run around with them and everything. I'll tell you, that's, that, that might be the biggest human being I've ever seen in my life. I mean, his arms are bigger than my legs. And I, I don't care what anybody said. Will was playing today, he'd still average 50. I mean, yeah. I mean the guy was just. Uh, he was he was I, I question he might have been an alien I mean <laughs> I mean he was in his prime he was the best there ever was well you mentioned Mel Daniels earlier I mean Mel was obviously a, a big guy you've told the story before of, of Wilt kind of just picking him up like he's nothing <laughs> right yeah we were in, we were out in San Diego and the Pacers rose the Pacers and back with the Pacers and uh, Mel uh, Mel started a fight with uh Flynn Robinson. Mm-hmm. We had we had kind of a running joke. Roger Brown had a running joke the first year Mel came to the Pacers. He said we had eighty two games, we had eighty two fights, and Mel started all of them. <laughs> so that's, but anyway, Mel and Flynn Robinson started swinging at another, and all of a sudden, all I looked, and all of a sudden, here comes all the guys off our bench running towards the fight, and it was just like they freeze framed them. They just stopped dead mm-hmm. in their tracks. I wonder what, and I turned around and. There was Wilt walking out of the court, and everybody just froze. And Wilt walked up to Mel, and I'm telling you, Mel was unbelievably strong, big, strong. I mean, he's strong as an ox. And Wilt picked him up like a little toy, and Mel's legs were just dangling. His <laughs> feet were dangling, and, and he would just, he couldn't move. And he told me when he came to the thing, he said, I couldn't move a muscle. He said, it's like it was in a vice. And Wilt just took him away and said, now, come on, big fellows, calm down, calm down. <laughs> and then, then Mel came back to the uh, bench and asked Freddie Lewis, why don't you guys help me? And Freddie just looked at him, we all laughed, said, yeah, right. right. That's Wilt. <laughs> You're going to have to help yourself with that one. Well, this show also focuses on uh, basketball cards, so I do want to talk to you a little bit about that because you had some basketball cards during your career, and I know when you were growing up, and even at that time, they weren't really mainstream, at least not to the level of of baseball cards. Had you even seen a basketball card before you played, or, or did you collect cards of any kind? I never collected them. No, I, like I said, like I said, when I was when I was growing up young, there was nothing about basketball. There was no cards. There was nothing. And uh, but I started, you know, I started seeing them, you know, towards the, you know, after my career started. Like oh, they came out, I think, the second year. Mm-hmm. And uh, and and it's amazing. I mean, these card collectors are unbelievable. I all because I got well to tell you the honestly, I just sent probably today i sent back probably 15 cards that i got in the mail there people send me my card autograph and i just autograph and send it back but uh, today was funny because i got a whole bunch of the day and i signed and sent back but uh, uh it's funny that uh, you know we we really didn't think much about that when we were playing but then yeah. it started to come out well i i believe it because i i would say over the past decade i probably sent you a couple times you've always been gracious about signing stuff and sending it back. So I do appreciate that. And, and I speak for the other collectors as well. That means a lot. 
Uh, your rookie card is the 1971 Tops card, and it has a bright pink background. I'm sure you know the card. I'm sure you've seen it a million times. And it features a headshot. All the other Pacers had the same pink background. I, I know Roger got a full body shot. I think Mel Daniels was from the waist up. Do you um, do you remember anything about the card process? I mean, did they even tell you, like, hey, we're taking pictures for cards, or how did that work? No, they, we didn't even know the cards were being made. And when they come out, we didn't even, when the pictures were taken, like I said, we, we <laughs> there was no, uh, the merchandising back then was zilch. They didn't, they, they, they just, it wasn't, there was nothing. To show you about merchandising, you know, Adidas uh, began their, their shoes back in about 1970 they came out with the you know the leather with the three stripe on it low cut that was big revolutionary everybody was wearing chuck taylor chuck taylor canvas shoes Mm -hmm. and in those days we had to buy our own shoes and and chuck taylor was uh you know they were 15 dollars a piece and back then that was a lot of money to us and uh, we could wear u.s kids but they sponsored the aba the u.s kids but they were like wearing diving boots they were terrible <laughs> so no, nobody would wear them and the guy this guy from the head of adidas uh came to us when we were out in la and see the lakers had not make the playoffs that year so la was the the stars were the big number and we're playing in the finals and this guy come in the, the head of adidas and he says tell you what guys we'll make you a deal we've got these brand new kangaroo suede leather low-cut blue shoes that we'll make for you guys and if you'll wear them they're two hundred dollars a piece or one hundred fifty a piece or something. He said, "If you wear them, we'll give you two pair a piece." And shit, we thought that was, we thought that was a, <laughs> wow, what a deal! You know, we got two hundred free shoes. We've been paying fourteen bucks for these lousy ones, and uh, so we wore those shoes uh, uh, in the finals that year. And then the DJs case started coming out with all the shoes. But that was that was our big shoe endorsement back then. We got two pair of free shoes. Now you know, I, I mentioned I talked to Slick. They had him on a a 1961 there was a you know very few basketball sets but Fleer made one in 1961 he said they wrote him a $15 check for his name and likeness um so I know I know Tops gave some of the baseball players they'd give him five dollars or I think they'd give him a choice of a gift from a catalog do you remember getting anything from Tops uh I got about the same amount of money as you did (laughs) zero wow well, that was a good deal for Tops, then I guess. I made it. I made an Indiana National Bank commercial my first year, my second year in the league, and they ran it for three years, and I got fifty bucks. That was it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, your last card, then, um, at least for from Tops, was 1975-1976, Was from that set. That was your last season um, in the ABA, at least. You didn't go to the NBA. You went to the CBA for a little bit. And to the best of my knowledge, that was the end of your playing career. Is that correct? I didn't really go to the CBA. They had this little uh, league that they wanted to start up out in uh, in New York the year after I got out. It was kind of a some goofy little guy put together. And we went out and played a couple games. That was about it. Now, I did coach in the CBA okay. down in Florida for a year. It's funny. I was coaching at the same time Phil Jackson was coaching the um, – uh, the Albany Patroons. He was coaching the Patroons, and uh, I was with the Sarasota Stingers, which okay. back in the CBA days. But that, that lasted about a year, and then Phil went up and got a hooked on with Chicago, and you know, the rest is history there. Yeah, seemed to work out uh, pretty well for him. But yeah, he went up as a sister, I think, with uh, Doug Collins, and uh, mm-hmm. 
Doug got let go, and they made Phil, Phil the assistant. And he had this uh, he had this kid named Michael who helped him pretty good. <laughs> right, seemed like it worked <laughs> all right for him. Then he got a couple other good good kids later on that helped him out. So since your CBA coaching days, you it seems like you've stayed plenty busy. I want to skip forward a number of years and talk about something that you've been very involved with that's called the Dropping Dimes Foundation. Um, and you serve on the advisory board there, but I would say you're, you know, you're the hands and feet of that organization, you and, and Scott Tarter and, and some other people. Can you tell my listeners, you know, what exactly is the Dropping Dimes Foundation? I was a part of the player rep back when the merger took place. And the part of the deal was, uh, the player, ABA player association said, we're not going to allow this merger unless the teams agree to fund the eligible ABA guys into the NBA pension. And they agreed to that. Mm-hmm. And so when I called to see about my pension, it wasn't there. And uh, nobody knew anything. And San Antonio had this little bitty ABA, what was left of this, the remnants of the ABA pension, but hadn't done anything. And so I, <laughs> I started scrounging around. I got some attorneys involved and da 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 da. And then they, you kept getting this, uh, you know, it's tough to fight the NBA. They're pretty big. And, uh, uh, the, the the basic fact was that uh, they said they were going to do something and they didn't do it, and that hmm. was I put that on the four ABA teams. But uh, you know, the back then the NBA pension was uh, same as our ABAs. It was like seventy bucks a month for every year you played. But since then they've had cost of living increases, and now it's like the NBA pension for if, if I if I played the NBA back when I was with the Rockets back then guys that played my year are getting close to 2000 a month for every year wow. they played so a guy that played 5 years he's getting 10 grand a month pension and they wanted to stick this ABA thing back give us a couple hundred dollars which is is not right but mm-hmm. what they did they didn't they had we had no representation in the cost of living increases but Forward, forward faster. That didn't. That all that stuff didn't work out. We we went through a bunch of stuff, and Scott Tarter and uh, a, a group of guys had heard about this and talked to us, and and uh, thought, well, you know, why don't we start a foundation uh, to help ABA players and maybe try and petition and politic to get these guys the uh, pension, some kind of a pension they deserve, and uh, you know that back in nineteen, I think it was. 1998 or 2000 something, the NBA came out and the got the pre 65 players in the NBA had no pension whatsoever, and they gave them a pension out of the goodness of their hearts and uh, and uh, we thought well you know it's not just like three or four hundred dollars a month instead of the two thousand but you know we said hey how about just taking care of us like that so Scott's been working on that and also raising money to help guys that. Uh, you know, just, uh, you know, had a tough time. And people have to remember back in the ABA guys, your average salaries back then, guys are, Connie Hawkins was one of the greatest players ever played the game. Uh, his first salary in Pittsburgh in the ABA was like 7,500 bucks a year. Hmm. So, so it's not, it's, these guys, I laugh when these guys come up to me, what do you do with all those millions you made? I said, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> they have no idea. So anyway, and dropping dimes is really Scott has just really worked his butt off. I, I actually, gosh, I, if I could just, I wish these guys really knew how much he really works. I mean, here's a full time lawyer, and the poor guy's spending half his time working on this ABA thing, and and uh, he's helped so many people. Like I won't mention names because all these guys are proud, but you know, there's a couple guys. One guy didn't even have enough money to bury his daughter that died. One guy was living in a car 
and couldn't even afford to pay his apartment rent and just stuff like that that Scott has helped and and there's a couple other guys right now that are in, uh, still have uh, you know serious illnesses that are going to be passing away shortly and I don't know if you read the article in the in the USA Today about uh, George Carter I did uh, yeah Scott, very sad Scott helped him so much and here was a here's a guy who was an all star. And the poor guy, you know, was being evicted. His house had cancer, couldn't, you know, and Scott and those guys really helped him. So I'm very, you know, again, I, I can't say enough about Scott. And Bob Costas has been great. Bob is, you know, he started the ABA, and he's, he's on the advisory board, and he has helped every way he can. And we've got Peter Vesey. We've got, you know, we've got some great players. So we've got uh, Dan Issel and Spencer Haywood, Rick Barry, George Gervin, Artis Gilmore. That's some pretty heavy hitters right there, and they're all—they all are in the same fraternity as all of us. We're all ex-ABA guys, but uh, I show a quote in my book that Walt Frazier made, and Walt Frazier said that today's NBA is the ABA, and we kind of think, you know, we changed the game. That's the name of my book, by the way. We changed mm-hmm. the game, and I really believe that the ABA took the a game that was lacking a whole lot and made it the game it is today. You know, you look at the pace of play, you look at the three-point shot and, and how big of an impact that has on the league right now. I, you know, I, I think that's right. I'll tell you a funny story. It's in my book. Actually, it starts out with my book. Uh, you know, Dick Tinkham, who was the president of the Pacers and basically held the league together. He was a league president and head of the merger committee. And and the reason we wrote the book is he, he called me up and he said, you know, when he, we used to have coffee all the time or a beer. And he said, you know, he said, I've been reading this. None of it's right. we got to tell the stories. And I said, okay, let's do it. And he told me two stories. And the first one he told me was that, the, you know, the Pacers in, the, in 19, uh, 1969, the second year in the league, we were in the playoffs. And it was the seventh game against Kentucky. We were a 10-point underdog, okay? And it's the seventh game. And... Little did we know, even the coach, even the GM didn't know this, but Dick said that that morning the owners had a meeting with bankruptcy attorneys. And had we lost that game, they were folding the team the next day and filing bankruptcy. Hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, we won the game. We went to the finals. But had that happened, it had been a whole different world out there in basketball. The Pacers folded, the ABA would have folded. Right. And there's a couple of situations just like that that Dick handled that, that, uh, that's just amazing. But the story I was going to tell you, is the first merger meeting was in New York, and there's a guy named Ned mm-hmm. Irish. Okay, he was the New York Knicks, and he was a he was a tough guy, and he uh, was handling the merger. And Dick Tinkham and the ABA people walked in the door. Ned Irish stands up, and the first words spoken in the merger, and we have we named our chapter this this exact words. The first words spoken in the merger were, "Which one of you assholes is Tinkham?" <laughs> <laughs> And Dick said, well, I guess that'd be me. And that's how the merger talk started out. But there's all kinds of really interesting stuff that went on that I had no idea happened. And uh, it's, it's kind of fascinating because back then, you know, there was, there was the billionaires, you know, that could write a check for $100, $100 million and not miss it. There is today. I mean, guys were getting by. And so it was, a, it was a pretty interesting time back then. Now, if if we talk about you know the NBA doing what's right and, and rectifying the situation with the pension, I, I know the short answer is they should pay everyone. I know you kind of worked out some you know possible practical solutions. What could they realistically do? How could they structure that to where they could help people? 
Well, you know, and Scott's been working with them, and I and I must say this: the NBA is now in in talks with Scott. I think they've taken a good hard look at this. There's some really great people in the NBA right now uh, that I've talked to, and and it's just you know these things kind of slip through the cracks sometimes. But if if we are hoping that they would do at least what they did for the old timers, or maybe a little more, typically we're supposed to get the full pension. But you know that's not the end of the world. It's just you'd be surprised. There's about a hundred and one guys, I think. When I started this thing out ten years ago, there was two almost two hundred guys. We've had almost ninety of my team, ninety guys die. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, you had to, the qualifications for a pension in any league is you have to have had three years of service. Okay, so there's about a hundred guys that would qualify for that, and um, if they would come and just you know, do, they could do the regular like the, a small pension. It would cost them, you know, the way I look at it, coffee cream and money compared to what they make. Right, I mean, they make. Five, six, seven billion dollars in TV. It would cost them maybe a couple million a year to, to do the pension, but uh, it would change a lot of guys' lives. There's a couple guys I know of, and like I said, I will not mention names, but uh, they live in. Uh, I know two of them right now are, and they were very good players in the NBA. ABA. They're living in small little apartments. They're living on Social Security, which isn't very much. And you know, a, a three or four year player, they get a couple, you know, fifteen hundred dollars a month, two thousand a month is is a life changer to these guys. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like a lot to most people, but to these guys, I think they really deserve it. And, and I must say, that the NBA has has actually come to the uh, fore and is is talking to Scott. And I think these guys understand. That's why they did it for the pre sixty five guys. They they didn't have to do it, but they said it was the right thing to do. And I think. Uh, that kind of attitude is, is really nice. And, uh, and again, the NBA is, uh, once we get this darn pandemic going with and everything, I think we'll get back to, you know, the way they were before. But, uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just tough for me to, you know, I, I sit here and I look at the numbers and I look at these guys and it's just like, Jesus, the last year we've lost three or four guys. And I just talked to Scott the other day and, and you know, there's two other guys right now that are, not going to be around much longer and it's just kind of just kind of gets to you when you think about it a little bit yeah well, i mentioned tops earlier incidentally they they went public today so maybe tops owes oh, you yeah. guys yeah maybe tops owes you guys some money as well since you never uh, <laughs> never seem to maybe, get that so they should maybe throw a couple hundred grand at dropping dimes every year to help work out i mean i think i think uh I think on a corporate level, I think I don't think the guy any guys would expect, although it would be nice to individual payments, but it would be it'd be nice if some corporate sponsors got behind the dropping dimes and uh, especially something like Adidas and mm-hmm. some of these places. It would it wouldn't hurt them to give them a few bucks every year because you know Scott and them work hard and they they take care of a lot of needy guys. Not one penny. They don't take one penny for themselves. There's there's no in, uh, administrative fees and and uh, I just uh, I'm I'm very very proud of them actually well i believe in what you guys are doing and you know obviously i wanted to hear more about your career but this is also a big part of why i wanted to have you on today can you tell my listeners um what they can do to help support this cause droppingdimes.org is the website if you go on there they got some great stories they got all the pictures of the guys and uh, you can donate there you can buy merchandise there Actually, you can buy my book through there too, because part of the proceeds of my book goes to Dropping Dimes also, and that that's WeChangeTheGame.com. 
to get that book and it, it uh, goes to dropping dimes and uh, you know if they look at the whole picture i think they will understand that uh, you know, again i hate to say this scott you know it's kind of a sad thing but hey 10 years from now there may not be a whole lot of guys around to, uh, to worry about that but uh, when i came to indianapolis they call it indiana no place because it <laughs> downtown if it's six o'clock you could drive downtown you wouldn't see anybody i mean it was they had nothing they had no sports they had anything and now they've got gosh they've got the colts they've got the pacers they had a super bowl there the only thing they had that was the 500 but that was only in may so i feel that the the aba and uh, it started a whole lot of stuff for the, the city of indianapolis and i wish i still lived there i actually i don't live there anymore but a couple of years ago my daughter and her family moved to austin and um so we came down to be with the grandkids. It's uh, it's quite a place down here. Well, Bob, I really enjoyed talking with you today. It was an honor to learn more about your career. I really enjoyed talking about the Dropping Dimes Foundation and also talking about your book. I will make sure to plug those things so all of my listeners um, have easy access to that stuff. And once again, thank you very much, and I will be talking with you soon. You take it easy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, well, there you have it. I want to thank Bob again for coming on the show. I first reached out to him back in January, and I'm glad we were able to make this happen. Of course, I loved hearing about his career and learning more about the ABA days, but one of the main reasons I really wanted to talk with him was his involvement with the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which, by the way, Slick Leonard was on the advisory board for the foundation. And Bob talked about their work a little bit already, but I think it's worth revisiting here at the end especially in light of all the ABA memories and stories that have surfaced with Slick's passing, because this foundation does a lot of good things to help former ABA players that have fallen on hard times. And not every situation they deal with is as simple as saying, here's some money to fix things. They have to put in the legwork too. Um, And sometimes it's making connections. For example, some of these guys need shoes and clothes and, you know, they're taller guys, they're athletes. So it's hard to find stuff that fits. Well, Dropping Dimes helps to connect them with people that have that stuff and are willing to donate it. However it is that they end up helping these players, there are still basic operational costs. And that's where people like you and I come in. Um, I donated last week and I encourage you to do so as well. You know, we get a lot of enjoyment from the NBA. The game wouldn't be what it is today without guys like Bob and all the other players who came before. Uh, additionally, I think donating could be a good way to honor Slick's life, you know, try to help out some of the players that he cared a lot for. Either way, the, the whole process is very simple. You just go to droppingdimes.org. Once again, that's droppingdimes.org. Once you go there, it's pretty self-explanatory, so I'm not going to go through every step. It, it's very simple. It's just a couple clicks. I'm not getting paid by them or anything like that. If you can't tell, I'm just very passionate about this cause and if you do end up donating and you want to send me a screenshot i'd love to be able to show bob that his appearance on the show helped raise some funds of course that's optional if you want to do it anonymously that works too either way let's help these guys out as i close this thing out you know maybe you're not in a position to donate right now that's fine but maybe there was something else that you heard today that resonated with you Feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. 
In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Shop through my eBay link and I'll get a small cut. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast.